Well, good morning. Would y'all please stand? And we are going to read the text. Um, today we are going to be in Luke 17, but we're actually just going to focus on the first six verses. So starting in verse 1. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain seed of must, a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity to study your word. I pray that right now you would make our hearts receptive to it. Lord, we've sung several times this morning about breaking our hearts and softening our hearts. And I ask that you would, in fact, do that. You would make us open and receptive to your word. Lord, these words that we've just read are uncomfortable ones. They're hard ones to hear. But Lord, they are clear commands from you. So I pray that we would accept and embrace these words. Lord, I ask that we're going to see this morning that you want us to put our faith in you, Father, and that you will do mighty works. And so I pray and ask that I would do that right now, that my faith would be in you. It would not be in my study. It would not be in my words. It would not be in my abilities, but it would be solely in you, Father, and that you, uh, as your words are proclaimed this morning, that you would do miraculous works in each of our hearts. God, I ask that you would be glorified, that your kingdom would advance this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. How's everyone doing? Um, so to start off, I was going to ask a rhetorical question, and uh, you know, that means don't answer me, but uh, have you... Are you familiar with how good descriptions are? Like a good description can be very clarifying and like it's helpful to have that, right? Like if I said to you, um, hey, I need you to go run this errand for me. And you said, okay, well, what am I doing? Where am I going? And I couldn't give you descriptions. Like it wouldn't be very helpful, would it? Um, so I was trying, when I was thinking of that this morning, um, I was trying to think of a moment in my life where that was real for me, and it was, you know, the unclear descriptions were, were very frustrating. And uh, so I used to work for a company that flipped homes, and uh, we would uh, go in for homeowners and help re- do renovations for them. And that does not mean I'm a handy guy. I'm not at all a handy guy. I can't cut wood straight at all. My wife can attest to that. But my job was essentially to babysit the grown men that were supposed to be doing the work. And um, one of the guys that we used pretty regularly, his, guy, his name was Hector, and he's one of those guys who could do it all except speak English very well, and I don't speak Spanish. So as you can imagine, there were times where there was confusion as to to what we were talking about. And a lot of times what I would do is I would run to the hardware store to get the stuff that the guys needed to keep them working. 
So there were times where he would try to describe me, hey, I need this. I'd have no idea what he was talking about. I'm, he, he didn't know the English terms. I didn't speak Spanish. So it was, we were going back and forth. So he'd, you know, that's the blue box, and it's this big. And I'd go there, and there'd be 20 blue boxes with the thing that big. And I'd get in and come back, no, senor, that's not right. I wanted the red box. I'm like, <laughs> so as you can imagine, I was very frustrated. So the point of that is to remind us that uh, descriptions, like good, clear descriptions are good, right? They're helpful for us. And that's the same thing in the Christian life. We, as Christians, we're saying, okay, I'm a disciple of Christ, so what does that mean? What, do, what does that look like? How should I look? And the Bible, God, through His grace, tells us over and over through the Word, here are descriptions, here are characteristics of what a Christian should look, should look like. And this morning, we're going to be in Luke 17, and we just heard several characteristics. We just heard several marks of a disciple, right? Now, originally, I was going to be preaching this whole text. <clears throat> if you, you didn't see it on the screen, but there's 37 verses. And when I was getting this thing ready, I had like 10 points, and it was, it was great. It was like a two-hour sermon. It wasn't that long, but it was long. And my sweet wife sat through it and was like, that's too long, honey. Um, so I really trimmed it down, trimmed it down. It was still really long. So part of the reason it was so long was because as I was preparing, you know, these first six verses, they were just so convicting for me because I was realizing I don't do these things very well or even at all a lot of times in my life. And so if I don't do it, there's a good chance that there's probably other people in our church who don't do that. And then I started thinking, we're in a unique season as Midland Church. We are a church plant, and so we are still laying the foundation for this church, right? So we have a unique opportunity to, to lay the foundation for how we as a church want to function moving forward. And I'm sitting here looking at these uh, first, you know, really four verses saying these are clear commands from Christ. And the chance, the reality is we don't really do these that well. So let's dig into this. Let's really look at these uncomfortable commands that Christ has for us. Um, so we're going to just be looking at the first six verses. Um, and I have two things I want to clarify before we actually get in. So the first is this is not an exhaustive list. Obviously, it's not. I just told you I had 10 points and now I only have six. Um, but I'm not saying these are the only characteristics of a Christian, right? The Bible is full of examples and marks and traits and characteristics that we should all have evidence in our life. And the second thing I'm not saying is I'm not saying if you don't do these things perfectly that you're not a Christian, okay? Um, the Bible is very clear that we are going to stumble and fail. We are going to see it in just a second in verse 1. But what I am saying is these are clear commands, so we need to honestly go before the Lord and say, am I doing these things? And if I'm not doing them, then we need to say, okay, well, what is holding me back? What's keeping me from doing these things that you've commanded me to do? Um, and again, I said, the Bible's clear that we're not going to be able to do these things perfectly. And we saw it in verse 1. Jesus said, temptations to sin are sure to come. Jesus is saying, you are going to be bombarded with temptation. We don't really get it in the English, but what he's saying is you, there's going to be an onslaught of temptation over and over and over every day. And we all know we're sinners, right? We fail. We're not going to be able to perfectly obey um, these commands. So Jesus is saying, you're going to be bombarded with temptation and you're going to fail at it. You're, you're not going to do these perfectly. So that should be two reminders to us. It should be a terrifying reminder, right? It reminds us what we're up against. You know, I think it's really easy for us to fall into the trap and think, okay, all life is about is working hard so I can play hard. We think that 
uh, all life is about. The goal of this life is to be able to experience the, experience the American dream. But we're reminded here that's not the goal, that there's an unseen battle going on around us and that our eternal destination, that's what's at stake here. And so this should be a sobering reminder to us that, um, that, that we are up against something that is big and if we're not careful, it can destroy us. But it's also a comforting reminder. You have Jesus here saying, temptations are going to come, and I know you're going to fail at it. I know you're going to stumble. You're going to sin, but I'm still going to go to the cross. It's as if God's saying, look, I know you haven't been faithful. I know you're not going to be faithful, but I've been faithful, and I will remain faithful, and I'm going to keep the promise that I made to you in the garden. I'm going to crush the serpent's head. Jesus is saying, your past, your present, and your future failures are not going to keep me from going to the cross to die in place of you. So that should be just such an overwhelming and comforting reminder, right? We have this moment of, oh gosh, this is what I'm up against. But then a sigh of relief, like, oh yeah, Jesus already handled all this. But then Jesus goes on with a harsh warning. He says, woe to the one through whom they come. So woe to the one through whom the temptations come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So he's saying, woe to the one who brings temptation to my people. That woe could be translated as cursed. So cursed is the one who leads my people astray. And then in verse 3, Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. And that's our first mark of a disciple. Disciples of Christ are discerning. So what is discerning? What does that mean? To be discerning means we detect, we observe, we identify the difference of things. And as Christians, we should be a people who discern the truth. We need to know what is true and what is not true so that we can reject those the things that are false. And the only way we can know what's true is if we know this. If we study the word, we read the word, we memorize the word, that's the only way we can identify what's true and what's not true. Now discernment, to be discerning, is, it should be an external thing and an internal thing. So it's external in the sense that as I receive and hear words, I discern if they are true or not. And, and part of what Jesus is warning against is false teachers. Be on guard against false teachers. So externally, we should be discerning if what we are receiving is true or not. And so if it's a false teaching, a false teacher, we should reject that. We should flee from it. But Jesus is also saying, you are at risk at becoming a false teacher. So be on guard. So we must internally be a discerning people. We needed to take our lives and compare them to the word. And if we see anything that we hold to that is not truth, we need to let it go. Tim Keller says that we should study the word and let the word study us. I love that. I love that picture of not only are we actively studying the word, but we're letting the word examine our hearts and determining what is the, tr the, the truth and the lies. And whatever the lies are, we reject those. So being a discerning people, it enables us, it protects us from false teachers, and it protects us from becoming false teachers. But discernment also enables us to do something else, and that's our second point. Jesus says to rebuke your brother when he sins. So the second mark of a disciple 
as disciples of Christ rebuke one another. And I said that discernment enables us to do that, do this because the only way we can see and identify sin is if we even know what sin is. So my question for y'all and for myself is, who do we let define sin for us? Do we, do we define sin? Do we let our hearts define it? Do we let the, the popular culture and the popular opinion define it? Does the media define it for us? Do we let the, the vocal and aggressive minority groups out there define it for us? Or do we let the one who is sinless define for us what is sin? We need to go to the Word to see what does our Father, what does the, our Creator say is sin? That's the only way we can identify sin. Now, I know when I said, when I read rebuke earlier, and now I'm talking about rebuke, we're all like starting to tense up because we don't like that. Because in America, that is a bad word, right? It's kind of like judge. That's like, don't you dare judge me. It's the same thing. Don't rebuke me. But the reality is rebuke is a good thing. It's we've distorted it in our culture. And we see here that this is a command that Christ has given us that is rooted in love. So the command to rebuke one another when we have sinned is a loving command. It's a loving thing to do for one another. You remember what Jesus said, if you lead my people astray, it would be better for that person to die a painful and miserable death than to actually lead my people astray. So this command to rebuke one another is put in place so that we can protect one another from becoming those false teachers. So we've got rebuke, we're to be a discerning people, and then we're to rebuke one another. And then the next point we see, the next mark of a disciple we see, is that we, as disciples of Christ, are to be actively and regularly involved in community with other Christians. Now, we don't explicitly see it stated here. Uh, It's more implied. But Jesus, what does he say? He didn't say, go and rebuke the stranger, does he? He says to rebuke your brother. We as Christians are not meant to live this life on our own. We're not supposed to go out and be rogue Christians that don't answer to anyone. Um, We aren't to not be involved with the local church because, well, it's corrupt and they're bad with money. And, you know, I'd rather just have my commentaries that I read and listen to my preachers online. Um, We are not meant to do that. We're meant to live in fellowship with one another. Now, that does not mean we all pack our bags and we're going to move out to some land somewhere and just be in isolation together. But we are to be actively involved in each other's lives. And so the best way to accomplish that is to be involved in a local church. The best way for us to be able to regularly invest in each other's lives is to be a part of a local church. And what does it look like to be a part of a local church? Because we live in a culture that would say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian because I go to church a handful of times a year. And they would say, yeah, I'm a member of a church. I haven't been in a long time, but I'm a member there and I'm involved there. Right. But that is not what it means to be plugged into a local church. Joshua Harris, in his book, Stop Dating the Church, which is a really good book and I highly recommend you reading it. He defines it as this. Uh, In America, it's viewed as. Uh, consumer mentality. It's, I'm going to go to church, you know, one or two hours a week. I'm going to take, take, take. I'm going to receive. I'm going to consume. And then I'm going to leave. I'm going to get my Jesus fix for the week, right? But that is not the biblical way to approach the local church. We are to approach the church with a contributor mindset. 
We need to come to our local churches today. How can I give them my time, my money, my resources, my skills, my abilities to, in order to see this church thrive and grow and be healthy? So here at Midlands, what does that look like? Well, it's doing what we're doing right now, fulfilling the command to regularly gather for corporate worship. It's also being a part of Bible studies. It's taking part in ministries. It's serving in the various ministries we have. It's being a part of the community groups and discipleship groups that we offer. Those are the best ways to be able to have access to one another, to be able to be intentional with each other, and to grow and develop relationships. And it's through God's it's His grace and His sovereignty, the way He has set this up, that we desperately need community with one another. Because it's really easy. If I block you all out, if I put up walls and don't let anyone in my life, it's really easy to hide my sin, right? It's easy to hide the filth and the mess that I live in. But when you all of a sudden start letting people in and they start seeing the mess, we're able to observe in one another, hey, you're sinning in this area. And out of love, I'm going to rebuke you. I'm going to urge you to leave that sin, to come back, to return to the Lord. Now, there's one final piece about rebuking the community. Um, if we're committing to this, if we're committing to we're going to be actively involved in a local church and we're committing to this idea that we're going to rebuke one another, well, you're also committing then to the idea that you're welcoming your brothers and sisters to come to you and rebuke you. That it's not a one-way street where, yeah, of course, I'll go and rebuke you know, my, my brother if I see him sin. But you are open to your brother or your sister coming to you and saying, hey, I've seen you sin in this way. Now, if you thought rebuking was hard, <laughs> just wait till someone comes to you and rebukes you. It's, that's never a fun thing. We don't, we don't get all giddy about that. But we need to plead with the Lord to soften our hearts and make us receptive to biblical rebuke. When we're rebuked, we need to run to the word. We need to go to other brothers and sisters and not go to yes men. Don't go to people who are like, nah, you're good. But go to those who love you enough that are, they're willing to say, yeah, I have observed that sin in you. Go to the word. Let the word examine you. And if you are found to be in that sin, then what do we do? Christ tells us, repent. And that's our next mark of a disciple. Disciples of Christ are repentant. Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him so that he might repent. And y'all, this is crucial. This is crucial right here. The goal of rebuking is repentance. Okay, the goal of, of rebuking should never be to scold or to belittle or to fill someone with shame. When we rebuke, we should always do it with the goal and the hope and the desire that the person's going to repent and that restoration will take place. So what does repentance look like? If we're supposed to do that, what does that look like? How, how can I demonstrate repentance in my life? I've heard a pastor describe it as it's confession plus sorrow plus movement. So it's confessing, it's acknowledging I've sinned, I've done this. It's sorrow. <clears throat> I, you know, I feel regret that I've done this and it's seeking out you know, forgiveness from the Father. And if you've sinned against someone, seeking out that person for forgiveness. But it's also movement. It's what can I do to get away from that sin? What steps can and should I take to get away from that sin? 
One of my favorite quotes is by a Puritan. His name is John Owen. And he says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. If we're left in our sins, if we don't address our sins, then the sin is going to kill you. So repentance is confessing that sin, seeking forgiveness, but also killing it. It doesn't stop it doesn't stop with just the confession and the sorrow. It's, it, all right, what am I going to do to kill the sin? Now, I think there's a, an illustration from a movie that, uh, or a scene from a movie that illustrates this really well. And these movies kind of get a bad rap with some people, but I really like this scene. I think it does a great job. But it's from the movie Fireproof. And I don't know if you've ever seen it, but there's a point in the movie, this, this, when the main character has a computer, and they kind of hint to us in the movie that he uses the computer for sinful activity. And there's a point in the movie where he, he realizes this is going to destroy me if I don't do anything about it. So he takes the computer outside, gets the baseball bat, and just goes at it. And that's what repentance could look like. It's, I'm sorry, I, I, I acknowledge I've sinned in this way, and I'm going to do whatever I need to do to kill this sin. So if that means I have to break my computer, then I will break my computer. If that means I need to get on a flip phone and get away from smartphones, I will do that. If that means I need to go to counseling, I will go to counseling. If that means I need to cut off unhealthy relationships in my life, if there are people that I have in my life who encourage me to sin, those tempters that are trying to lead me astray, I will cut those relationships off. Disciples of Christ, when confronted with their sins, kill it. We should never be prideful. We should never act like the sin's not there. We should never just ignore it and think it will go away. We should be actively seeking out the sin in our life and killing it. And actively seeking it out means that I have other brothers and sisters also helping me actively seek it out. Now, if you thought rebuking and repenting was hard, the next command is probably the hardest one, in my opinion. you all remember what Jesus said? He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. I don't know about y'all, but that is a hard command to obey, right? Our flesh wants us to drag out that process, don't we? Yeah, you sinned against me. I'm going to make you feel it. I'm going to make you feel sorry for doing that, right? That's our, that's our fleshly response. And it doesn't help that we live in a culture that supports that. We live in a society that doesn't offer many second chances because we don't want to be made a fool of. We, won't, we don't want to be taken advantage of. But Christ is saying, if your brother or your sister is truly repentant, then you must extend forgiveness to them. And that forgiveness needs to look like the Father's forgiveness. What does God say? He says, I have removed your sins as far as the east is from the west. He's completely blotted them out. So when someone seeks forgiveness from us, we need to say, okay, I forgive you and I've put your sins away. I'm not going to bring them back up at a later date to make you feel bad. The sad thing is our culture doesn't really do this. And the reality is the church is worse at it, isn't it? The church is very quick to shun. The church is so often so quick to, to belittle and turn people away because they are in their sins. 
But we need to be a people marked by this radical forgiveness because we have experienced that forgiveness ourselves through our Father. So we need to graciously and repeatedly offer that forgiveness to others. Matt Chandler, when he was talking about this text in a sermon, he used the illustration of parents watching their child learn to walk for the first time. And he said, this is actually a beautiful illustration of repentance and forgiveness. And so that got me thinking, you know, about my kids and when they were starting to walk and, you know, when they fell down, we didn't scold them. We didn't yell at them and say, you fool, what are you doing? You know, we, we encouraged them. We consoled them if they were hurt. We encouraged them and urged them to get back up and keep walking. And in the case of our oldest, we dangled pickles in front of him and, <laughs> and that seemed to work. So but we encourage them to get back up and continue that pursuit to walk. So we as Christians need to encourage our brothers and sisters in this race. And when we fall, we need to rebuke one another, but we need to also plead with them to repent and then beg them and encourage them to get up and to continue this race. Now, I love this next part. So verses five and six. So Jesus has just given us these commands. He says we're to be discerning people, we're to rebuke one another, we're to repent, and we're to forgive. And the disciples respond basically the way I would respond. It's almost like this. Okay, God, that's a hard thing you're asking of us. I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one, but I feel kind of overwhelmed when I hear those things. Like, I don't do those very well. It's really hard, especially when you start bringing in sinful, messy people who have wronged you, and you're supposed to extend forgiveness to them. So their response to Jesus is, increase our faith. They're saying, we can't do that. We need you to increase our faith so we can do that. And in Jesus' response to them, I think sometimes we, we hear this response and we think he is basically telling them, no, that's a bad question. He's not saying that. What Jesus is saying is, well, Jesus isn't saying this, but... It's a good thing for us to want our faith to increase. It's a good thing for us to want to exercise our faith and to see it grow. We should never not want to just let our faith be little and just not ever address it, okay? But what Jesus is saying to them is, all right, first off, you have the wrong understanding of faith, so let me correct your understanding. And in correcting it, I'm gonna also explain to you how you can see your faith increase. And so that's our sixth mark of a disciple. Disciples of Christ are faith-filled. We're people that are filled with faith, and specifically our faith is directed towards God. So in this parable that Jesus gives to the disciples, he says, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So what Jesus is saying to them is, you're saying that you can't do these things, so you need more faith. He said, but it's not how much faith you have that matters. What matters, what's important, is where your faith is directed. He said, even if you have the tiniest ounce of faith, if that faith is put in God, then God can use it. God can do whatever he wants. He's big enough. He's powerful enough. He can do the most miraculous and incomprehensible things, like in this scenario, uprooting a mulberry tree and tossing it in the ocean just at the command of our voice. Ephesians 3.20 says that God can do immeasurably more or abundantly more than all that we can ask or think. It's saying 
we can't even comprehend how powerful God is. That even in your wildest dreams, that God's more powerful than that. And then Ephesians 3.20 goes on to say that power is at work within you and me. So mighty and miraculous work. So commanding a mulberry tree to be uprooted and planted in the sea. Or you repenting and fleeing your sins. Or you forgiving your repentant brother for the seventh time this day. Those works are not dependent on the amount of faith you have. They're dependent on God, who should be the object of our faith. So Jesus is saying to them, you don't think you can do these things in your own power. And you're right. You you will never have enough power. You'll never have enough faith to do these things that I'm commanding you to do. The only way you can do these things is if your faith is in God, because he is more than capable of doing these things. See, it's only by the power of God that we have the ability to comprehend God's word so that we can be a discerning people. It's only by his power that we can approach one another in love and rebuke each other. It's only by his power that we can, in humility, receive rebuke. It's only by his power that we can repent. It's only by his power that we can extend forgiveness to each other after the millionth time. It's only by God's power that we can put our faith in him. Now we're going to transition to our time of communion, and we do this every week. Um, This is a family meal. I'm sure you all have heard us say that a lot. But this is a family meal. So this is open to to those who call themselves disciples of Christ. Um, And I want to encourage you, Christian, during this communion time, uh, to, to use this time to reflect on this power of God. The same power that raised Christ from the dead, the same power that raised you and I from the dead, that power is at work within us. So with confidence, let's go forth and do these commands. Let's, let's go forth, love one another, rebuke one another, repent when we need to repent, forgive when we need to forgive. Let us do those with confidence, knowing that this amazing power of God is at work within us, enabling us to do it. And if you're not a Christian, if you're not someone who calls yourself a disciple of Christ, then we would ask that you refrain from this family meal. But please use this time to ponder these words that you've heard this morning. And if you have any questions, please do not hesitate to talk to me or talk to one of our elders. (coughs) Let's pray. God, thank you that you, who are so mighty and so powerful, would allow that power to dwell within us, your children. God, we do ask that we would uh, recognize our desperate need for you and this power, that we would never cling uh, to our abilities cling to ourself, cling to the things of this world, but we would cling to you, trusting that you will enable us to do the works you have called us to. God, I pray specifically for Midlands Church this morning, and I ask that we would, in fact, be a church body filled with people 
who are marked by a love for one another, not just a shallow love that our society calls love, but a love that is willing to call one another out when we see sin. That we would be a people marked by a humility and a willingness to receive rebuke. That we'd be a people who repent. When we are faced with our sins, we would not hide from them, we would not deny them, but that we would put them to death. God, make us a forgiving people. Make us a people who embrace one another and welcome the broken and the weary in our midst. Lord, increase our faith. And we put our faith solely in you so we can see you do mighty works so that our faith would increase. Thank you for your son. Thank you that through him salvation is offered. I pray that that your kingdom would advance this day, Lord, and that we would boldly and courageously go forth and proclaim these words. In Christ's name.